0: The Science Inside Podcast. This is The Science Inside with Elna.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schurz. And for the next hour, I am joined by my team behind the scenes, as always, Bridget LaPere on production and Kutlana Saame on tech. It's so good to be with you tonight. And I've got to say, even though I don't want to have favorites, this topic on today's show, or at least for the main story, is very close to my personal heart. And I think close to many of us. Today being the 2nd of July is the start of Mental Health Awareness Month here in South Africa and various other places around the world. And as you know that term mental health is so big, it spans a large variety of issues from mental illness and psychiatric disorders to broader mental disorders like substance abuse. And if I made a list of all the people in my life who struggle with depression, Anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, self-harm, suicidal thoughts and so much more. It would be a very long list and I'm sure you could make one of your own and that list should concern all of us. Those people on that list should concern all of us regardless of how distant or close the reality of these medical, psychological, emotional and psychiatric issues are to us. The research in this field in South Africa is sadly limited, it surprised me and uh, yes of course it is quite a difficult thing to pin down into numbers in general but still I, I was a little bit surprised, there's um, one particular study called the South African Stress and Health Study which took place in 2003 and 2004 which is of course quite a while back. And, of course, the, the numbers would have changed quite drastically since then, but it seems to be one of one of the most reliable sources of statistics for this. And it formed part of a more global research study and is, as I said, one of the only, um, if not the only one, in terms of large representative studies in this field in South Africa. And this study looked over a 1 year long span it studied over 4000 people and looked at some common mental disorders uh of course not everything that would just be too broad for one particular piece of research and the results found that 16.5% of local adults had some disorder on the list so that's one in 6 That number goes up to almost one in three people if you're looking over a lifetime. These were especially major depressive disorder, agoraphobia without panic, which is when um, you are scared to leave safe zones like your house, and alcohol abuse, which they um, they did classify as a disorder. And again, these are things that a lot of us are familiar with but it's not just an issue. So I am very happy that we are making time on the show today to really stop and take this seriously, not just as medicine and science, even though we are looking at it from that lens also but as something that is close to us Um, so in our main interview today we speak to a psychologist about how we relate to mental health and how this affects our relationships this is one both for those suffering of something or surviving something and those around them trying to support and connect Then that's not the only thing we have on the show. As you know, we love having a mixed bag of things on the science inside. In our unscience where we look at funny and silly and strange research today, it's all about how science uses brain signals to figure out if someone is lying or not. And then later in the show, we look at a strange story around worms in teeth. Hmm, if you've seen that online, you definitely want to find out whether that is science or fiction. That's all in the show. But before all of that, as always, we like to get into the news and look at some things that are happening in the world of of science news. But just a big thank you to Africa Check and SADAG, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, for some of those numbers I mentioned earlier, which are difficult to pin down, as I said. But for you, I would love, love to hear your stories, especially today, celebrating or um, rather commemorating Mental Health Awareness Month here Tell us what you have experienced, whether it is um, within yourself or with people in your life. And ask us questions. We have experts that would love to tell you more. So what you can do is find us as VowFM or um, or on Twitter as well as Facebook, VowFM, hashtag science inside, really simple. And if you miss anything on today's show, it'll... All be up on the podcast. Don't worry, it's on iTunes as the science Inside, as well as our website is pretty easy to remember. It's vets.journalism.coza forward slash science. If all of that is too complicated for you, of course, there's the WhatsApp line that you should have saved by now 0840784912. You can find all of that information online. But let's get into the show with the news up next.
2: This week's Science Headline.
1: As always, we, join, we are joined by Bridget LaPere, our producer in studio, just to chat through some of the things that are happening in the world of science. And you have some slightly shocking statistics for us today, Bridget. I sure do.
3: How are you, Elna? I'm really good. Let's get into it. Yes. Um, it is said in this study that air pollution is responsible for over 3 million new diabetes cases in a year. So this year would be 2016.
1: Okay. Um, I thought the main cause for lifestyle diabetes was lifestyle. So so chocolate, food,
3: no? No, not according to the study. They say small particle air pollution is linked to increased risk of many chronic diseases. More than 90% of air pollution related deaths happen in Asia and Asia. And Africa, but cities in the Americas, Europe, and East Eastern Mediterranean, 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 sorry for that, also have air pollution levels that are far beyond what the World Health Organization deems healthy. And in the study, which was repre- presented by the assistant professor of medicine. Dr. Ziyad Al-Ali at Washington University. He says the risk of diabetes increased at air pollution levels which were well below Environmental Protection Agency's standards.
1: Okay, just clarify a little bit. You used a term there, small particle air pollution. I thought air pollution is air pollution.
3: Not according to this. Particulate air pollution is made up of microscopic pieces of dust, dirt, smoke, and soot mixed with liquid droplets. The finest particles regulated by the EPA are 2.5 micrometers. While in layman's terms, these particles are 30 times smaller than a strand of of hair, which is uh, 70 micrometers. The danger with these particles is that anything smaller than 10 micrometers does not only enter our lungs, but it also passes into the bloodstream. Oh, wow. And there it is carried to various organs and begins a chronic inflammatory reaction thought to lead to many of the chronic diseases such as asthma, lung cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and many others. And these particulates are largely created by manufacturing power plants,
1: agriculture, and motor vehicle traffic. Okay, you are mentioning some really big numbers. Three million people is a lot, um, but over how much time is this? Is it in total? Is it over one year?
3: Well, um, as you would know many of these studies are carried out overseas but in the United States air pollution was linked to 150 new cases of diabetes per year. So in 2016 alone the study found that air pollution contributed to over 3.2 new diabetes cases around the world and in total just over four million deaths were attributed to air pollution according to the world health organization
1: okay so how were they able to find these numbers sure diabetes numbers i can understand but diabetes specifically linked to air pollution well researchers
3: gathered data on 1.7 million U.S. veterans with no history of diabetes who had been closely monitored for an average of eight and a half years or so. They controlled all the variables known to cause diabetes. They also ran a series of statistical models comparing the veterans' levels of diabetes to uh, pollution levels documented by the epa and nasa so veterans who are exposed to air pollution between five to ten micro, micrograms per pu- per cubic meter of air which is less than the epa's prescribed 12 milligrams safety level So they also found that 21% of them had developed diabetes. The the study also shows that being exposed to higher levels of between 11.9 to 13.6 micrograms created a greater risk, indicating that 24% of them had developed diabetes. So researchers indicated that though an increase of 3% may seem insignificant, it translates to an additional five five to 6,000 new diabetes cases per 100,000 people annually.
1: Wow, and it's quite shocking that there's such a big um, effect despite these levels being below the recommended um, amount. So... Maybe they should be looking at their regulations a little bit closer also just to take this into account more but something I'm sure all of us want to know is which cities are affected by this especially. The study has pointed out that it is difficult to rank cities because
3: the data was collected from various sources. But according to WHO, cities with higher pollution numbers included Los Angeles, Bakersfield, California, Indiana, Kentucky, and many others. And the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health ...released a report that over 90% of pollution-related deaths occurred in low- and middle-income countries. And among those hardest hit were the minorities, the poor, with children being the most vulnerable group, even with um, exposures to low doses uh, of air pollution... So it, air pollution was responsible for nine million premature deaths worldwide in 2015. This is 15 times more deaths than, than all wars, um, than than all wars, um, violence combined, and three times more than malaria,
1: TB, and AIDS combined. Okay, that's shocking, um, to say the least. But. If the first world countries are more polluted, what causes third world countries or or other countries to face the same challenges? Well, poorer countries have fewer
3: resources and they also tend to be very relaxed when it comes to clean air policies. Uh, these were countries such as China, um, India and its neighbours, Pakistan and Banglade- Bangladesh. They faced a higher diabetes pollution risk. While... Healthier countries such as France, Finland and Iceland faced a low risk because of the very strict clean air policies and regulations and African nations of Nigeria, the DRC, Ethiopia and Tanzania are among those countries bearing the heaviest burden of uh, air
1: pollution. Sure. It just shows you how these things are so interconnected, even with diabetes um, and our personal health. Air pollution isn't just something that ruins your sunrise or your sunset. It um, it, It should be regulated where it can be. True. And this information
3: from this report was sourced from Health Effects Institute and the State of Global Air 2018 report and CNN. Correct.
1: So, uh, my story for you, Bridget, just to continue our news is from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology via Science Daily. And even in Arabic, it gets a little bit rainy. So, Bridget, do you have that good waterproof coat? You mean like a raincoat? Yeah. I do own one. <laughs> so you're you're safe when it when it rains. Plus, I use an umbrella. Yeah. So you're, you're you're really protected from all the rain. And I think most of us, you know, we know that, especially when we're out hiking commuting, you don't really have a choice. It's not like you can always just hide under under a building or something. You um, can often get wet and it seems like the kind of thing that's sorted, right? We have raincoats. Yeah, It's fine. Why <laughs> are you even talking about this? Well, turns out that even though these waterproof or water repellent fabrics that we all know and probably have in our cupboard actually are not as good for us as we think they are. First of all, most of them do eventually let through water instead of making these droplets bounce off, as would be the ideal. But there's another problem I had honestly never heard about, Bridget. Apparently, the fabric coatings that normally get used have been shown to accumulate in the environment and in body tissue and in some cases be bad for your health. So your raincoat is affecting you, possibly. And we're talking clothing, footwear, even backpacks, sleeping bags and tents. And it's gotten to the point that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has changed their rules or started to change their rules, trying to phase these out, even though it's been the norm for ages. Wow, I hope
3: you're not going to tell me that there's some bacteria that's been collecting for decades <laughs> in the raincoat, but I never actually thought that this would be a problem. So what should we use
1: instead? So it is all about this coating, um, uh, thankfully it, doesn't, uh, it isn't a bacteria, it has to do with how this uh, this coating um, is structured and that's exactly the question the researchers have been trying to answer. If not this, then what? And the team at MIT seems to have found the best answer, at least one of the best so far. So their new coating can go on natural fabrics like silk, cotton, um, all kinds of things. It's better at repelling water droplets than the other coatings, which is already really pretty good. But very importantly, it doesn't have those side effects, so it's less likely to be toxic to humans. Awesome. So how does it work? Uh, you need to just understand firstly the old stuff or the stuff that gets used um, has a chemical structure of long chain polymers with si- uh, very certain side chains. And they are based in a liquid. So once the fabric that you want to coat is dipped in that and dried out, it then needs to be blown through with air to open up the pores and let the fabric breathe. So all of that is a bit pricey. It breaks down how water resistant the fabric is. And so technically you'd want a shorter chain polymer, but those aren't working up till now. So what this particular team at MIT did was develop a shorter chain polymer that they would then combine with a different New way of coating It's called Initiated chemical Vapor deposition ICVD And has only been around For a few years So no wonder That it is new And they um, Hopped onto This ICVD coating And together It creates a thin Uniform coat over the fabric Without the liqu- liquid Steps Or even the extra Processes So it doesn't have That, eff- that side effect Of the long Polymer chains But it has even stronger water repellency. Cool. Who knew that so much research goes into raincoats, right? Yeah. yeah. And here's a cool thing. It even works on something
3: like paper. Wow. <laughs> that would open up some interesting new
1: options. Yeah. Especially if they can do pa- paper. What about, I don't know. There's all kinds of things. Um, uh, I'd be really interested to see how this can develop further. And they are hoping to patent and get this out pretty soon. So it's a good solution for all of us and we can... Stop worrying about raincoats. If I just made you worry, it's okay. I've given you the solution, right along with it. Um, I hope you're caught up now on what's happening in the science news in the world. Just a couple of quick stories before we get into our main one for today. It is about Mental Health Awareness Month.
0: This is the science inside with Elna.
1: Welcome to the show. If you've just tuned in, remember you can find us on social media. Get in on this conversation at Valf M on Facebook and Twitter using the hashtag Science Inside. The other very important hashtag which brings us to our topic for today is hashtag Mental Health Awareness Month. That is exactly what's being celebrated or commemorated this this July. And as I said earlier, mental health covers a lot of different things. We are aware of that from severe psychiatric illnesses to just how each one of us handles our psychological and emotional state on the day to day. There are so many conversations to be had around specific issues like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder. But since it's an awareness month, I want us to think about this a little bit differently. And have a conversation around how these medical and psychological and psychiatric conditions exist not in a scientific vacuum But in our society and our relationships, our friendships, our families, to put it simply, how do we deal with this? whether it's the mental health of ourselves or those around us. So to help us with this, I have on the line Leanne Lurie. She's a clinical psychologist in private practice and an associate with the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, SADAG, who is doing a lot around Mental Health Awareness Month. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us for this very important conversation. Thank you for having me. Now, we all have feelings, (laughs) we all have thoughts and emotions, they can regularly be in turmoil and transition, none of us are grey blobs with perfect balance, so sometimes it can be hard to know whether something is normal or actually really a problem that we should ask others for help for, so how can we tell? whether that's in ourselves or in Mm -hmm. other people, whether something should be taken more seriously than a hug and some chocolate ice cream.
0: (laughs) So, look, I mean, obviously normal is a very, like, relative term. And what's what's normal for you and me versus what's normal for somebody else may be something completely different. And obviously how we define normal, you know, is also often based on, you know, on our backgrounds, on our cultures, on, you know, on, on how we've been raised. Essentially, like what we say is that we all know sort of what our, what our baseline level of functioning is. So we know, you know, the, the things that need to get us going every day. You know, can we get up? Are we able to, you know, eat and sleep properly? Are we able to take care of our day-to-day kind of our hygiene, of our functioning? Are we, you know, able to see commitments through on a social, occupational, interpersonal, you know, level? Or has there been either sort of a gradual or a very sort of fast kind of decline in our functioning? Have people started to comment on massive changes, you know, in our like in our behaviour, in our appearance, for example, in like things that we call sort of your activities of daily living. Now, look, depending on the severity of what you're dealing with. So are you dealing with somebody who's presenting, for example, let's say with just kind of a a basic kind of low mood or has it declined into a major depressive disorder or are you dealing with somebody, for example, who may may be displaying signs of psychosis who are either hearing voices or seeing things that aren't necessarily there. You know, I think their reality testing has become like poor. Hmm. And then, you know, we, we look at... You know, how is it impacting on themselves? And also, most importantly, does the person present as a risk to themselves or are they also a risk to others? And I think also, I think that very often for an individual, they may realize that they're not sort of functioning at their optimum or somebody else is not functioning at their optimum. But whilst you may have the insight into it, doing something about it is is that much harder? And some people like, like the person may be filled with a sense of shame in terms of actually being able to reach out for help or in terms of that they're scared they're going to be stigmatized or, you know, w- what does this actually say about me? Hmm. So what we what say to somebody, okay, for example, if you're worried about yourself, okay, you know, is there somebody within your support system that you can speak to? Do you need to go for professional help? Does that mean starting off, for example, let's say, seeing a social worker, a psychologist, a counsellor, or just you know, simply going to have a chat, you know, with your with your doctor about what some of your symptoms have been. Or do you need, you know, for example to go and seek the services of a psychiatrist. Okay. In terms of in terms of reaching out to somebody else, again, you have to look at the severity of what you're dealing with. And very often, if you point out to somebody that you don't think they're coping and that they need help, you may be met with a lot of, a lot of defensiveness. And so you can, you can leave a space open to say, you know, I, I can see you're not coping, I can see something's up, you know, I'm here if, you, here if you need me, I'm here to help you get support, okay? That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, for example, let's say we're dealing with somebody who's having some kind of psychotic breakdown, they may not obviously have the insight to recognize what's going on with them. And in those instances, we have to look at whether we need to intervene
1: in such a way that the, that the person gets help even if it's on an involuntary basis. Mm-hmm. That does make a lot of sense. But the thing is to carry on from that, even if we get somebody into in, into whatever kind of help they need, it has to carry on from there it's not just a couple of sessions and a couple of pills to pop and no of course not the the support system ar- around that person is is of real interest to me because what does that look like practically it's easy to say um oh i have compassion for somebody with um mental uh, mental health challenges or some kind of mental illness but on the long term um I think it can get very, very tough for that person to keep reaching out continually to the support network and the support network to continue being there or the ecosystem to continue being there. And um, just, just to give some harsh examples, in a sense, it can seem sometimes like if you have a friend with social anxiety, even though you want to have empathy, you might get... You know, you might get sick of the fact that they never want to see you or have fun, or um, you know, a certain the highs and lows of bipolar disorder could really strain constant relationships. How does one handle? How does that su- practical support system look like? So look, I think on the first on the first level, I think
0: the individual has to. Educate themselves and empower themselves on the nature of the condition that they are dealing with, because once they have that information in their hands, they can also position themselves better with whatever support system they have, in terms of actually like explaining the symptoms, explaining some of the behaviours that other people may see, and to also you know to, to say to your support system, if you see me doing let's say X, Y, and this, Let's talk about somebody, for example, who's got a bipolar mood disorder, okay, and who may manifest, let's say, like manic symptoms. So they can say, right, you see that I'm, I'm not sleeping, that my like, thoughts are running away, that my speech is pressured, for example, you know, that I'm feeling invincible. Please understand this is not something that's in my control. It's not something I'm doing on purpose. These are, these are my warning signs. And at that point, I'm giving you permission, you know, to, to get me help. Mm. Okay. Yes, you raise a very important point that I think that, you know, people that have not been through, you know, some kind of like psychological, psychiatric distress or maybe people that have just, you know, themselves have compassion fatigue and burnout from caring for, you know, people that have not been well, they're not always going to be empathic. They may also, you know, also present almost as quite, quite insensitive to the individual. And so what we also say is that you also have to learn to build community and build support outside of your family for example outside of your friends because as much as a family or friends like those systems may try and have the best intentions in the world sometimes they don't get it right and of course there's no recipe and there's no one size fits all Mm. so you know for example like look at a resource like the South African Depression and Anxiety support group. Find out what support groups are available in your area. You know, like go to those meetings in, you know, empower yourself like in that regard, surround yourself with other people but also have direct experience in terms of the condition that you're dealing with. You know, also if you if you're going to go and see some kind of mental health practitioner, if you have a social worker, a psychologist, your GP, a nurse, a you know psychiatrist, take people that are important to you with you. Mm-hmm. You know, in, empower them. Don't make this whole division of sort of, a, of of them and us. In terms of you know, in terms of well, nobody understands me and I'm, I'm on my own. You know, in this journey, allow people to ask questions. That's the one thing. The other thing as well is that we also say to people that yes, you're not responsible. For the diagnosis that you have, you didn't choose to have this mental illness, but you are responsible for doing what you can in terms of keeping yourself well. And if that means, for example, keeping your own symptom diary in terms of, let's say, your sleeping patterns, your eating patterns, what's happening with your thoughts, how are you managing your stress levels, are you regularly following up, you know, with with your primary healthcare practitioner? If you are on medication. Are you taking it properly?
2: Mm.
0: Because at the same time, I think what very often happens is that families or support systems also develop compassion fatigue when, for example, they see that you are not you are not taking care of yourself properly, and those things are in your control, and that's when there's sort of eleven of of anger is generated towards the sufferer because the person at that point throws their hands up and, and because they feel helpless because they don't they don't know what to do for you anymore.
1: And they then withdraw. Yeah, Leanne, what should happen in a case where uh, the ecosystem or the support system, um, the the general the general system around that person, and the conditions of living? Aren't what they should be. Uh, there isn't enough people to c- take care of them, or um, the influence of, of poverty, or other people yeah. suffering of other illnesses around them. We've we've got to see, um, as you have been describing, we've got to see mental illness not in a vacuum, not just as a as a diagnosis on a piece of paper. What, what do we do, or what should happen when? the ideal care is not adequately there. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think it's an exceptionally relevant question, I think especially in the South African
0: context, you know, in which we find ourselves, especially in the wake of the, you know, the last acidity, like, travesty and tragedy. You know, these these are questions that, that we have to be asking. And I think that we, we do, we know that we had a severe shortage. You know, for example, let's say, of, like, of halfway house facilities, you know, that can also cater to individuals where the family cannot provide, you know, the the infrastructure and the emotional, for example, even the financial support for the individual. You know, in an ideal situation, you know, you'd hope that there are social workers in your community that can get involved, that, you know, can do regular checkups, you know, like on the individual, that there are community-based kind of support groups available. But we also know, like we also know very sadly that it doesn't happen. We also know that there are vast, you know, cultural differences in terms of how one would understand, you know, a, a presentation of, of mental illness. And of course there's no there's no one size, you know, fits all. That you know, you have you may have patients, for example, that that present to let's say within like a Western sort of medical framework. And, you know, a doctor may diagnose them with depression, but obviously within their community, the framework may be viewed very differently and the individual may be viewed as having been bewitched.
2: Mm.
0: So the psychiatrist will say, okay, you've got to take X, Y, and Z medication. And the, the community will say, no, you actually need to go and see, you know, one of the, let's say, for example, one of the Sangomas and, you know, you need to allow on, on traditional remedies. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that a Western framework is right and that a traditional framework is wrong. It, it doesn't mean that at all. But I think that we also need to be a greater sort of meeting of minds so that both the Western and a traditional framework can also understand where the other is coming from and so that interventions can, in an ideal world can be tailored towards the needs of the individual so that there
1: is understanding and there is additional like, support. And this brings me to... That point where so many um, discussions around mental health and mental illness land, which is that this isn't just a scientific medical um, issue, no. but it's but it's also not the stereotypes um, and the stigmas that are very prevalent in South Africa around pull yourself together. Yeah, pull up your socks. Yes. So lastly, Leanne. What would what can you leave us with in terms of the best way of placing mental health in our in our relationships in our community? What is the best way that you would recommend we see it? So look, I think that if you if you
0: are worried about yourself or you're worried about somebody else, don't be afraid to have those courageous conversations. Don't be afraid to actually point it out. And I think, you know, very often all of us, we're very scared of what we don't know. We're scared of something that presents as out of the ordinary. And rather than than sort of rushing to judgment or, for example, isolating or shunning that individual, have the courage and the heart to, you know, to express that you're worried about them in a very, like, non-judgmental fashion. And, and, you know, either seek help for the individual, or if you are the individual that's struggling, seek help. Because I think very often what happens, like all of us, is that, you know, we cope, 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 and there's such a pressure to cope, and then the wheels fall off the wagon, and one day you actually, you can't get out of bed and you can't function. Mm -hmm. And rather seek help and nip something in the bud before it actually becomes this, this massive, massive issue. The other thing as well, I think that is so important to realise that, you know, often you, you, you think that you're completely alone and, and you're struggling in your own head. Only to find when you start to talk to someone, let even as part of a support group, or you phone, you know, you phone a telephone a counsellor, you start to learn that there are actually many more people around you who also similarly
1: struggling but they but they won't open up and by you opening you give them permission to open up. Mm, Strong, strong good advice from Leanne Lurie that we should take mental health very seriously, not just this Mental Health Awareness Month, but always, whether it is in ourselves or our loved ones. Leanne, thank you so much for speaking. Thank you very much for having me. And she is an associate of the South African Depression and Anxiety Group that I've got to say has some really great information out there on their website, SADAG dot org you can find all kinds of things if you if you think that you're maybe not coping they also have support groups but something that i especially like especially for people who are busy for students for people who think oh alna you've said great things but i don't think i can walk into a counselor's office i don't think i can do that for whatever reason what I love is that they have these cool mental health lines, help lines, where you can sit in a corner, in your room, in the quiet, call someone. Nobody has to know that you're reaching out and somebody can really help you. So I'm going to give you some of those numbers. You can also find them online. Um, the mental health line at SADAG is 11 but the one I really want you to remember—the 24-hour helpline is 0800 121314. 0800 121314. Go and save it into your phone right now. You never know when you're just going to need a chat or when you're in serious trouble. Here on the Science Inside, we really do love talking about mental health and and making it a, a wider conversation, not just around the medical aspect, but the very real social and emotional aspects around it. Do keep listening because after the break, it is unscience.
0: Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events.
1: By now, you probably know how it goes on this show. In the middle of everything, we take a little bit of a break. It's still science, but it gets a little bit strange or funny because there are funny sides to science, um, and we I, I do really enjoy talking about them. But it can also um, get very relevant to our lives. It's called unscience. We look at the weird and wonderful side of what scientists spend a lot of time and effort and even money on. Today's Unscience was produced by Bridget Lepere and comes from Science Daily and Slate. Let's get into it.
2: Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience.
1: Bridget Lepere is with us back in studio, our producer. What have you got for us? Well, today we are going to be talking about,
3: you guessed it, um, imagine a world where deception is a thing of the past, where we could use science to solve mysteries and figure out whether a person is lying or not.
1: Okay, that would be terrific, of course, for a lot of people, at least not people who uh, lie very often, um, if I had that kind of tech, um, But we do have that tick. Uh, Bridget, don't you remember we actually covered polygraphs a little while ago? I do remember I am very much aware of
3: that but what I'm talking about right now ventures into neurosciences where science uses a person's brain signals to figure out if someone is lying or not and this brings me to a study that is looking at neural law and they are looking at the ethical implications and what uh, should should in case where in the case where a person is unwilling to testify or to give uh, evidence so if their brain is actually
1: admitting to guilt Okay um, Explain to us more how this works and how it's different to polygraphs well, unlike polygraphs which use different parts of the body such
3: as uh, looking at things like twitching and accelerated heart rate and all those other intricate details, brain science through the use of FMIRII, Um, monitors and tracks flashings of light in different parts of the brain, depending on whether the person is lying or not. A review published in Frontiers in Neuroscience explores the current literature and advancements in the applications um, of neuroscience law. And the challenges with neuroscience is that the law is facing difficulties in drawing a fine line between what is justifiably
1: ethical or not. You know, you lie US, you know you're Ooh, okay. Way. So, what you're saying is that, um, as much as the third party, let's say the police, with the use of neuroscience techniques that you were describing, mega overboard in their scanning, that the law is being employed to protect the brain rights of people being scanned? Correct. Previous applications have been used to determine
3: whether someone has intimate knowledge of a crime and it is being viewed for its potential to be used in legal cases and inform judges and juries. So the researchers working on this study, uh, Professor James Giordano from Georgetown University, says using this technology will definitely give great insights into that individual's capabilities but he also adds that because the technology is available does not necessarily
1: mean it's okay to use that's the thing with this just because it's available just because it's you know possible to use this to solve crimes i don't think it should necessarily be used there's still human rights
3: right and they are looking at building a framework of defined guidelines which will govern how neuroscientific methods are being used whether they are used correctly
1: and effectively within the constraints of the law okay I see the dilemma that they're facing when you look at the one hand you have great science which can work really well if the person is really guilty but then on the other hand it would be open to abuse and transgressing human rights and as was with the polygraph, that applies, or that door is open, even if people are not guilty and can cause harm. Exactly, and this technology brings to the fore a violation of a
3: person's right to privacy. It is a sort of a, it is sort of a crime against a person's dignity in, in a way, because it leaves the person vulnerable. And this is being considered whether it should be permitted in court. The researchers also looked at previous cases where neuroscientific techniques were used to determine truth and infer intent. In the United States, it was used for the first time in 2010 and current rules of federal evidence provide strict criteria which constrain how brain science can be used.
0: You can't handle the truth!
1: (laughs) So what um, other things did this uh, study find? Professor Giordano and
3: Calvin Kraft from University of Notre Dame both insist on the need for discussions around threats and an individual's rights to privacy and to also try and iron out the vague definitions of what exactly is the private domain. Guidelines which take into consideration both the potential and limitations of brain science in its legal context. Hmm. And this would translate to how far into one psyche would neurosciences be allowed to go and before being guilty of trespassing um, a person's brain space, so so to speak. This review will also serve as a starting point for exploring the relationship between brain science, ethics and law on a
1: global scale. Mm. This is so tricky because law um, obviously tries to find guilty and innocent. Did you do it or didn't you do it? Yeah. And so if you have these kind of scientific methods, um, that seem reliable I can understand how some people would say well if Bridget is guilty I get to look into her brain but of course as you mentioned human rights and and um also, just the the gray area here that these things aren't always as simple makes it a lot more difficult. Yeah, not everything is black and white, you know.
3: <laughs> well, unusual, unlikely, unscience. And this information was gathered from
1: thesciencedaily.com and slate.com. Okay. So. If, you, if you're interested in neuroscience, I think this was a very 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 strange but good, um, very applicable research study to really see how does science come together with the law and how far is too far? What is if I get my hands on this and I want to use this not for a criminal case but to find out if my boyfriend is, is cheating? Is that still... That's a little science I'm not so sure But stay with us on The Science Inside We'll be back after the break
2: Unusual Unlikely Unscience
1: This is The Science Inside With Elna Now in the show is the part Where we ask some questions and we hope that science will find us some answers. Sometimes it is pretty, pretty clear. It's a yes or a no. It's science or it's fiction. It's a myth or it's a myth bust. And a lot of the time, even science can't give you such simple answers for life, unfortunately. But that's what we love to do, and we always learn something. Today, the notion that worms. <laughs> Worms are the cause behind toothaches Has been something that has been passed on From a generation From one generation to the next um, In certain cultures But do we still believe these tales Even in the modern age of technology While on a visit to the doctor um, I recently overheard women talking about Various remedies for toothaches You might have heard um, stories like this before And um, there's a use of an indigenous plant Called Koghut that you might have heard about is also called Seletium totosum, which is a succulent plant commonly found in South Africa in the Western Cape region. It is also known as Kana, Chana, as I said, Koghut, which literally means chewable things or something to chew. And, um, and these these ladies um, or these people that believe in this usually say that a traditional healer who uses herbs to extract worms from teeth, that that is how these herbs get used. They extract worms from your teeth. And apparently these traditional healers then burn indigenous herbs, place the ashes on a stick and place the stick with, um, with these herbs into a person's mouth. And then apparently the smoke from the herb kills the worms that exist um, there and, uh, uh, and, and then they come out. So once the extracting of the worms is over, the person spits into a container and the traditional healer shows them the worms. So this is a story that's making the rounds. So as per usual... We we thought let's take it into our astri- let's take it in our stride let's find out if there is some science behind these practices. We spoke to a dentist who runs his practice in Springs, Doctor Yakshin Lindy.
2: No, most certainly not. There's no worms per se that exist in teeth. They are microbials that exist in the mouth. They it, in the form of bacteria, and that can be present in the tooth, but they are such minute, microscopic that they're not visible to the naked eye. So if the traditional healers are saying that they can see the worms actually coming out, then that is false. Although, mind you, I have seen a video whereby there have been maggots which have eluded from a specific wound in the buccal surface, which is the cheek side of a patient's mouth, but that was due to unforeseen circumstances of the patient having extremely bad hygiene. And obviously there have been, you know, other facets of larvae that was laid into this wound site. But as for toothache per se, there's no such thing as worms in the tooth. There's bacteria that causes inflammation within the tooth, but definitely not worms in the tooth, no.
1: Modern technology through the invention of the microscope has made it possible to examine the tooth pulp very closely. And scientists have discovered that teeth contain hollow tubes located in the dentin of the teeth, according to the American Dental Association. So diseased teeth can give off a worm-like appearance. So um, just going on to further find out, is it possible that brake fluid can actually soothe toothaches?
2: It's definitely not advisable and it's definitely not healthy. In fact, it's contraindicatory because what breakthrough it does, and it's not just breakthrough I've heard this myth across many a tradition. Some people use breakthrough some people use paraffin, some people use even clove oil in, in its essence. That it, it does remove pain and it, it does not remove, but to, to reduce the pain. But essentially what it's doing is it's just masking the symptoms. And masking the symptom means reducing the pain, but not removing the cause. The cause is still there. So essentially what it's doing is, if you can imagine you have a broken arm. If you don't cast that broken arm and put it into something that will immobilize it, you will still continue using that broken arm and it will cause more damage for the arm per se. But if you use something like paraffin or brake fluid and stuff. It's going to mask the symptom whereby it reduces the pain by blocking the tubules or by rendering the site parasthetic, which is a little bit of, you know, no feeling in there, but essentially you're going to be biting. You're going to be chewing. You're going to be carrying on using the site, which will cause more damage. And that is a primary direct cause of damage, but the indirect cause of damage would be that the brake fluid contained chemicals that contains acids. It contains all of these variables that can cause soft tissue damage. So essentially, it's going to be doing more harm than it is doing any positive, which is to remove the pain. Because remember, pain is just a symptom of a greater problem that exists. So while bodies are telling us there's something wrong, they're sorted out. That's why we have pain. So essentially, the cause must be removed and definitely not masked by breakthrough or anything else.
1: Modern dentistry has proven that most toothaches are caused by dental problems resulting from do- tooth decay, plaque, and tartar. Plaque develops when bacteria builds up on the surface of the teeth and irritates the gum tissue and accumulates on their enamel. And this causes cavities that may expose the sensitive tooth pulp gum disease as you may know from your dentist is also a leading cause of dental disease. So poor oral hygiene is the primary cause of gum disease in particular. In the following Dr. Lindy gives advice on what a healthy oral health routine and plan looks like.
2: As with uh, our country and you know we've got a lot of pre-existing conditions and a lot of systemic problems. The best thing that one can do to assist toothache and pain is prevention. So that's from a young age. People should be regularly going for the dentist for checkup and for cleanings and polishings and for fillings and all the minor things so that it doesn't get to a stage whereby there's decay and then there's pain and there's subsequent removal and then there's replacement, you know, because as you go higher on, onto the levels of treatment plans, things also get much more expensive. And that is why they say healthcare isn't expensive. It's neglect that is the expense. So, there needs to be prevention. If um, pain exists for unforeseeable circumstances such as trauma or, or anything else on, on that spectrum, then patients should also seek professional advice. Professional advice is the only way that there can be relief of pain and removal of the cause, as I said. So there needs to be a twofold approach. Number one, prevention, and number two, seeking professional advice because home care remedies, yes, they find they can take away on a transient level, but on a broad spectrum, there needs to be a removal of the cause. So essentially what people need to do is the right thing, which is um, prevention and then seeking professional help. And it doesn't need to be expensive professional advice uh, help such as going to a specialist or going to, to a primary health care facility. You can go to your general clinic and they'll be able to not per se, diagnose anything that's too specific. It's within the scope of practice and the, the field of spectrum. But they'll be able to then refer to, your, to an appropriate clinic in the government facility as well, because I've worked there. And they will be able to take those necessary steps to bring about pain relief.
1: So, if you've heard any myths around teeth, like um, the ability to extract worms that are causing harm to your teeth, Today on our um, on our section around strange science ideas floating around, at least it was pretty clear. Modern medicine or modern dentistry at least says no. There's no question about it. There are probably not worms in your teeth. It just looks like it. Um, so one win for science um, on that one. We're going to finish off the show in just a minute. Stay with us. This is the Science Inside with Elna. It's been such a good show today from that very enlightening and serious conversation about how we talk about mental health and um, and to people in our lives with mental illnesses to unscience around whether brain scanning should be used in the law and then lastly are there worms in our teeth? No. <laughs> Very simple answer there today. It's been a good show and a big thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show today including Leanne Lurie and Dr. Yakshin Lindy. Our team behind the scenes works so hard on the show. Production by Bridget LePere and tech by Kutlano Sayame. If you missed anything it's not a problem because the podcast is on iTunes as the Science Inside and vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. Very simple website. Also you can find us on Facebook as Vow FM, also on Twitter. My name is Elna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the Witz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. As always, I'll be back with you next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on PowerFM 88.1.
0: The Science Inside Podcast.